0: You have your Bibles? Can you please turn to Matthew chapter 5? Matthew 5, starting at verse 13. This is also going to be our final sermon at this series Loving Your Neighbor. So, so before we begin, let's pray. Father, we're grateful and we're thankful that we have this opportunity, that we have your word. Father, we can come before you this morning and receive grace and peace, receive wisdom and understanding, receive instruction and correction, rebuke and admonishment. Father, we thank you that your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword able to divide between soul and spirit, bone and marrow, to go in our hearts and work like nothing else is able. So we ask that you would do this work by the Spirit, for the glory of your name, and because we are in your Son. Amen. So Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. Well, we As we've come to the end of this series of loving our neighbor, this morning we're going to see how loving... Loving our neighbor is both salt and light to the world. And not only that, loving our neighbor is what will glorify our Father who is in heaven and be profoundly good for us. Profoundly good for you. Loving your neighbor has a powerful effect. And it doesn't just have a powerful effect on the world around us. It has a powerful effect on you as well. Within these few verses, we're going to see the impact our love, the impact our love has on the world and the good it brings to us. In the beginning of Matthew chapter 5, this is a famous passage, right? What is, we know it as the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus gets up and preaches this incredible sermon, and he begins by saying truths about people that are blessed. He just starts talking about those who are blessed. But they're, and they're commonly known to all of us as the Beatitudes. And these people are blessed, not because they go and try to perform the things that he's talking about, but rather they're blessed because when this is true of you, when these blessed states are true of you, it is proof... That God is at work in you. Jesus begins this passage, and he says things like, "Blessed, blessed are you uh, if you seek." He, he, sorry, <laughs> he doesn't say. He doesn't say, "Blessed are you if you seek to be poor in spirit." Does he? When he begins, he says, "Blessed are what? Blessed are, blessed are the poor in spirit." This is a condition they find themselves in. It isn't a condition they bring themselves to. It's easy to see these conditions of this blessed state and you think, okay, this is what we need to try to be. No, he says it's blessed when you're that. It's blessed when you are actually poor in spirit. Because this is a work of grace. God, by his spirit is at work in your heart. You want to, This is evidence. You've been blessed by God. God has smiled upon you because you're in this blessed state. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who, who mourn. Blessed are those who find themselves broken. Yet these people are not the kind of people the religious people of the day would call blessed. They would say, you are blessed when you're strong. You are blessed when you're confident. You're blessed when you exact justice. You're blessed when you're ceremonially clean. You're blessed when you have wealth. You're blessed when men speak well of you. That's what they would have said in that day. That's a blessed person. The Pharisees would be all over that kind of blessing those kinds of markings of the blessed life. So what does Jesus do? He reorients our our whole idea of what it means to be blessed by God. He says things that strangely related to the segment of society that the people thought were cursed. They thought people were cursed in this state. When you see people that are broken, who are poor in spirit, who are humbled, who are meek, who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness because they don't have any of their own. These are people who truly want the righteousness that they don't possess. There are those who are merciful and seek peace instead of their own agenda, etc., etc. These are the people who are blessed. And these are the ones Jesus is called is pleased to call his friends. And why is that? Because these are the ones that the Spirit of God has worked within, and grace is evident in their lives. And then he comes to verse 13. Verse 13, where we're going to be picking it up. And he says to these people, he turns now, he just talks about these blessed people over here, third person. Now he talks to them directly and he says, you, you are the salt of the earth. These blessed ones who the world doesn't see as blessed are the salt of the earth. Now this is a very interesting statement because it's important for us to understand that salt in the ancient world especially was an essential an essential in that society is to do two things. First of all, it flavored food, which we still understand today. We use salt today, and and if you're on any cooking show and you forget the salt, they're all over you for that. Salt's important. It brings out flavor. But it was essential back then, because in so many cases, it's all they had. Secondly, salt was a preservative. They would pack salt around food to keep it from decaying. They didn't have refrigeration. Compressors weren't invented then. They didn't have freon. They didn't have any of that stuff. They didn't have freezers. So they live in a culture where if you're gonna if you're not just gonna have hand to mouth and you're gonna preserve any especially any kind of a meat, they would pack it in salt to keep it from deteriorating and getting bacteria and going rotten. So salt was a preservative. It added flavor to life. So salt was viewed by them as an essential. To make, for life to be good, to taste good, and to, for life to be preserved, to be well. And today, we don't really see the essential nature of salt, to be called salt. You are the salt of the earth. Like, ooh, salt. You ever try salt? You ever put salt in your, in your mouth? Salt all by itself can kind of make you go, oh, yeah, Nasty. But if you if you live in a society where it's essential commodity absolutely essential to it's like the only spice you have really to make things flavorful and it preserves life they see it in that day when he called them salt they understood that this is a fundamental of society of all life and without it death decay blandness savor is gone so this is huge. This is like you guys are the salt of the earth. You guys are the flavor of all of life. You guys are the ones that bring preservation to society. Rottenness and decay is is prevented from you guys. So Jesus, what Jesus was doing when he used this metaphor was showing them the effects the church has on the world when it lives out the love Jesus has lavished on them. We can't forget that this comes immediately after the attitudes of blessing. So when God's grace is operative in our hearts, and we are ministering grace and peace to the world, the world begins to see us as the goodness and the preservative of all society. However, what happens, he says, you are the salt of the earth. Then what does he say? But if salt has lost its taste, its savor, its flavor, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under under people's feet. If salt doesn't ever lose its feature, it's the look of salt. But salt can actually lose its savor, its flavor. It's no longer effective. And he says if it's done that, if it's lost its effectiveness, sure it might look like it, but it never, no longer has it. It's not really good for anything except for what? To be used on the ground. You, got, you throw it out and you put it on the ground because that, what else do you do with it? If it doesn't preserve anything and it doesn't flavor anything, what's it good for? <laughs> Nothing. Throw it out it has no other purposes it has no other uses you just throw it out and it's, you walk over top of it because that's about all it's good for of course there's a lot of theological questions that might pop up in our minds when we hear this statement but we don't have time to unpack all the maybe the nuances that come into your mind what does that mean what does it mean if if it loses uh, its taste and he asks the question but he doesn't give the answer how shall it be made salty again but the point here we can't miss that if the church, the people of God, God Christ's people, if they lose their flavor and savor in the world, what ends up happening to them? It's true, and we've probably seen this by experience, they get thrown out and treated and discarded and treated as like a almost like a swear word and thrown and, and trampled over. I think we're seeing a great picture of this today. In so many cases, what we see, if we look around at the church, we see a church that's lost its saltiness. It's no longer the flavor and savor and preservative of the world and society. What we find is a church that's being trampled underfoot by people. And so often what you see in the church is just a self-indulgent, focused trying to simply attract people instead of being salt to the world. Robert Lewis, in his book, The Church of Irresistible Influence, made a very interesting insight about the church. He said that the church could could even be recognized nationally, which means it's a national-sized church, but it remains a stranger to its very own community. It could even be stuffed... Uh, It could even be stuffed full and yet reduce itself to the margins of a culture. A footnote on a local chamber of commerce pamphlet. They have nothing to say and no way to say it in the very communities in which they are rooted. The best that they can be mustered is the launching of empty words like deflated balloons untethered to the community. Join us this Sunday. Jesus loves you. Come to the blank event whatever it is for those outside the church these words float by like leaves in a winter wind he said this isn't the saltiness jesus was talking about jesus is calling the church to be salt in the world and to salt it to flavor it to bring flavor and preserve it, and preserve society the very thing that the, the world doesn't throw out and it, throw out and discard as being useless, but the very thing that they see, begin to see as the savor and flavor and preservative that they need. That's what the church, this is weird, that's what people, God's people are called to, to be salt. And then he says something else. He goes on, he says, in verse 14, not only are you the salt of the earth, but what are you as well? He gives another metaphor now. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. In a book of Ma- uh, Mondrell's Travels, he spoke of, historical, uh, of a historical fact that gives some interesting color to what Jesus is saying here. He wrote this, The Mount of Beatitudes, which was a small rising from which our blessed Savior delivered his sermon in the 5th, 6th, and 7th chapters of Matthew. Not far from this little Hill is the city Saphet, supposed to be the ancient Bethulia it stands upon a very eminent and conspicuous mountain and is seen far and near may we not suppose that Christ alludes to this city in these words of his a city sent on a hill cannot be hid it's probably likely that he pointed as he's teaching apparently there's this beautiful city that was up on a knoll And that city at night would have glowed and been seen from far. And it's a beautiful picture. And as Jesus was teaching his disciples this, you are the light of the world. And perhaps all he did was turn his hand. He says, a city set on a hill that cannot be hid. For a perfect metaphor, a perfect illustration for them. Light was so much more important again even in their day than it is in ours. Because today, what do we take for granted? We come in here and we have light everywhere. We just what we just do like this, right? Flick, flick a switch and boom, light goes on and we just take it for granted. Have the lights have you ever been around the lights go off uh, for quite a while? You know when a nice storm hits the area and takes out the power. And then you try to generate light in the middle of darkness? You've got 400 candles lit, everything you can find to try to generate some light, and you realize creating enough light to function and live in a space is very difficult. Sure, you can get a flashlight and go to where you're going and head somewhere, but that's great for getting there. But to live and to function, having a lot of light is difficult to come by. It's not an easy thing. In that culture, generating and having light was seen as this wonderful blessing and a necessity for everything that they did. Well, it is, of course, is a necessity, but they had to actually work at it and be very thoughtful of it. Light was essential for them. Not only essential, but we all know light was beautiful, glorious. This is why the city on a hill metaphor is so amazing. They know what it looks like at night. You know, one of the great things we love to do this time of year is drive around and look at Christmas lights at night. <laughs> in your neighborhood, especially. <laughs> and there's something about these little lights in the midst of darkness, glowing. And and you ever, you know, what is that? You're thinking, why is that so beautiful? You know, all someone has to do is wrap these little tiny lights around a tree, turn it on at night, and it not only ma- it makes the tree look really neat looking, those little lights in the backdrop of darkness is just simply beautiful. People will take a building, if they really want to make it look magnificent, and they take these big floodlights, don't they? And they put them at the base of the building and they shoot them off the building. And the light shooting off the building at night just gives it this really cool look that you go, wow, that looks great. Because light in the midst of darkness is beautiful. It's glorious. uh, Sunsets. The light. Here here we have the light mixing with the darkness, but overcoming it and, and and displaying colors that we wouldn't normally see just before it does get dark. All of this is a picture of what God's people are to the world. And as beautiful as these analogies are, that we could try to multiply analogies about how beautiful and glorious light is. They had something that was even greater. They had the the light of the world speaking these words to them. Here was Jesus in their midst, the light who's come into darkness. He was the light, Jesus in their midst. When Jesus was going through Galilee, He went dispensing goodness and blessing. He was a glory. He forgave sins. He healed the sick. He gave sight to the blind. He caused the lame to walk. He set people free from demons. Jesus wasn't just a light because of who He was. He was a light because of what He did. Jesus' light shone through His actions and all that He did. He just didn't glow goodness. He was goodness. He manifested through his life. So we're the light of the world because we've received this light. This light has come to us and given us light. He's done good to us. He's forgiven us. He's blessed us. He's raised us up from the dead. He's delivered us from the devil. He set us free from sin and death. Jesus has given us life and life eternal. He satisfied the desires of our soul, our deep longings in our heart. And then what does he say to us? What does he say to us? To go and be light. He's given us the light. He is the light. And now he calls us to be the light. We are the light of the world. Therefore, as we collectively go and love the world as Jesus did, we shine like a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. It will only be as we love our neighbors and our city that we will become a beacon of life, love, flavor, glory, and goodness. Letting our light shine letting our light shine before men. As Jesus told us in verse fifteen. People do not light a lamp and put it under a basket. But on a stand and it gives light to all the house. He says, So what was that light given for? When you light a light, what do you do with it? Do you cover it up? So they're sitting there going, no. You don't don't light a light to cover it up, do you? You light a light to give light to darkness. You light a light to overcome darkness, right? I mean, what's the whole point, what's the purpose of it? So Jesus is saying here and understanding themselves as light. I didn't light you up so that you could go find a dark corner. I lit you up, so that you could light the world. So that is his exhortation. Here in verse 15, he says, in the same way, now he talks about, how does this light, love the world, shine? He says, let your light shine before others. Let it shine before others, the light that he's given you. And what is he going to say? So that they may see your good works. So, what's he equating with light? The good works. Our good works are the light that emanates, that shines. He says, Let your light shine before men so they can see your good works, so they can see that. And then what ends up happening? And they give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So he said, this is what happens. I have given you light, and the reason I've made you light, and the reason I've done this work in you is so that you would be light. Not that you would be hidden, but that you would go out like me and be light to the world. So that you would bring goodness, glory, beauty, savor, and delight. You would be a people marked by this. The idea is that the world would experience, the world would taste, the world would see the goodness. You know, I have to shamefully admit to you that I thought for years that as long as we're preaching the word, working hard, taking care of our families, And discipling our children, we would be fulfilling our calling and somehow have a great impact on the world. However, I don't think that was a very complete picture of what meant to let our lights shine before others. Those things are very important and never want to diminish them. Those are they're essential. They have to be pursued. But I reason I use the word carefully, it's incomplete. I think the, fu- the kingdom isn't fully manifested in this way unless we are fully understanding what even Jesus is saying here and what he came to do. I have come to realize that I, I actually need to go further in letting my light shine. I need to intentionally, intentionally be reaching out to the world around me, intentionally loving my neighbors, intentionally loving my city. And I realized that unless unless we're letting our light shine before men through our good deeds, we're not being the light to the world. What ends up happening, I think we end up being light in a corner with a basket over top of us. We are light, but that light is not engaging the world at all. Rodney Starks wrote an article on Christian history, um, and that particular article I read before in the series earlier on. And in, in it, he showed how Christians impacted and changed the world and affected the world through their practical love that was shown to their neighbors. He wrote, during the plagues that swept the Roman Empire, During AD 165 and 251, the willingness of Christians to care for others was put on dramatic public display. Pagans tried to avoid all contact with the afflicted, often casting the still living out into gutters. Christians, on the other hand, nursed the sick even though some died doing so. Christians also were visible and valuable during the frequent natural and social disasters afflicting the Greco-Roman world, like earthquakes, famines, floods, riots, civil wars, and invasions. Even in healthier times, the pagan emperor Julian noted that the followers of the way support not only their poor, but our poor as well. So even the Emperor Julian was impacted by the church. Noticing what? What was he noticing? The salt and the light they were to the world. Noticing their goodness, their savor, their blessedness. Noticing how, how amazing this group of people were. And sometimes in the midst of the darkest ages, the darkest times, the darkest periods, is when the church goes and loves in the midst of that, that this light, the light shines the brightest. It's the most glorious. It's the most amazing. And this is what Jesus is calling the church to do. We are called to love our neighbor and love our city in such a way that we consistently think of ways to let our light shine before the world so that they will see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. That they will see the light and know where that light came from. We're not light producers. We're we're like the moon. We're light reflectors. Jesus is the sun. We are the moon. Jesus is this glorious sun that, that His light beams on us, we see His glory, His goodness, it emanates. And just like He said later on in John, He says, talked about our doing anything good, He says, you can do nothing apart from Me, but those who abide in Me, those who abide in Me will produce much fruit. The fruit that comes out of their lives, the fruit of love, the fruit of light, the fruit of life flows out. This is, what the, this is what Jesus is calling the church to be. The salt and light of the world. This is who you are. This is what you're to be. You're not to be a light. This to be hidden under a bushel or a basket, hidden somewhere. You're to be a light in the world, to the world, for the world. You're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. This is where we need to be engaging Gauging in the world so that they would see the goodness and the glory of Jesus in and through our lives. How many of us know of a church that is doing such a good job at being salt and light in their community through the loving acts that they do, that they have a reputation, an absolute reputation for their love? They're known for their love to the community. They're known for their love to their neighbors. Do you know of a church? Can, do churches pop up in your mind real quick? Often not. Thinking, do you think of a church that has that reputation as that? Now, sure, we do things, you know, we the church is known for doing particular acts, but and particular acts are great, but often to gain a reputation, you know what you need? Consistent and perpetual acts. That gains a reputation. One-offs, don't gain reputations. Perpetual and continual starts to build a reputation. You become known for. You know, how many churches do you know who, who have had such an impact on their neighborhoods, communities, and city that everybody talks about them and communicates about them as being the savor, the life, the light of this community? I don't know many. And you know, I also think this happens. We become so teaching oriented. We think it's all just about academics, like knowing certain things things in our minds and you can see this because of all the emphasis and priority what we have you know we, we put so much emphasis on things like the sermons classes bible studies book studies sunday schools and you name it if you look at the programming you'll see what is the emphasis here and of course it's important of course it's necessary and even in me saying that i run the risk of you of people thinking oh you mean what we should get rid of that stuff not at all not in the slightest. Because we have to grow in our understanding of who our God is and what He's done for us and what He wants us to do in the world and what this is all about. We have to be steeped in that. However, if that does not lead us out to love, then there has light really come in if light doesn't go out? You almost got up wonder what we're learning. Because as Jesus said here, he's telling us the point. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Don't go hide it. Go shine it. But perhaps what you're hearing this morning is a call to do something that you don't have time for. Or it sounds like too much of a sacrifice for whatever reason. But here's something we have to understand. When we think, if we think we're going to sacrifice for God and do good to our neighbors and go do all this loving stuff. We have to understand that we're choosing to do one of the most rewarding things we could ever do. One of the most impactful things we could ever do. Remember, remember this the kingdom is upside down. Therefore, Jesus says things like the more you give, the more you receive. The more you give, the more you receive. The biggest loser is the one who thinks that I will be losing if I give. So they pull back. If I give more, if I share more, if I, make, if I make a sacrifice at all, we start to think, wait a second, I don't have energy, time, resources. I don't have ability. I don't have. So we look at what we don't have. And we make a decision based on that. Instead of making a decision on what God promises. Faith always requires walking forward based on the promise, not based on what we think and see with our eyes. God is the one who made the world, right? He made the world. It's He that said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. It's he that said, I have come that you might have life and have it to the fullest. It's he who said, My yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's he who said, He who loses life will find it. It's he who said, Anyone who's left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold in this life and in the life to come, eternal life. Who said all those things? Jesus. As Hudson Taylor has put it, I've quoted him before with this, with God there's no such thing as sacrifice. Because the moment you think you're going to go and sacrifice, he doubles and triples and throws it back on your head with blessing. He makes it so that our every attempt to sacrifice comes back a hundredfold. You know, this is the experience of anyone who, Who's ever gone on a mission trip before? I don't know if you guys have ever been somewhere. And you go, that's what you go thinking. I'm going to serve. I'm going to help. I'm going to bless. I'm going to do all these things. And then you find out one you're there, it was all, its like God somehow. It was all about you. God was working on you. God was filling up you. God was doing something on you. So you went to give, to serve, to bless. And you received more than you ever gave. And it can be some of the most rewarding thing you ever do. The most satisfying, the most fulfilling thing. Because I went to give and then I received. Because that's the way the kingdom works. So anybody who chooses not to reach out, not to love the neighbor, not to love their city, is actually defrauding themselves. A blessing. So being a light is not a call. What you're hearing this morning is not a call to duty, but rather a call to delight. Jesus is offering you joy. He's not offering you a job. This is where it works with him. Whatever he calls you, whenever he calls you to do something, You should expect joy, blessing, and goodness on the end of it. But you know what you see, he's calling you to something, and what you see, it doesn't appear that way. Just like yokes and burdens, right? When he talks about his yoke being easy and his burden being light, do you know what a yoke is? A yoke goes over the neck of the oxen, straps him in, and he's getting ready to work. He's getting ready to plow. Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I've come that you might have life, and you might have it to the fullest. And then he calls us to sacrifice, to love, to serve. He calls you to a cross. He who wants to find his life, what must you do? Lose it. It kind of makes our head go sideways and we're going... It it appears that if I do this, I will lose. Jesus says, I know it looks this way, (laughs) but you will gain. I promise you. So you have to go forward in faith believing. His promise is true. And by faith, I walk forward and do these things. Sometimes, you know, with nothing in me. But as we do these things, we find him to be faithful and true. And as we love our neighbors, as we serve and give and sacrifice, and if you hear these words serve and give and sacrifice and go out and love the city and love this, you're like, "Oh, more oh, work and work and job and you do, do all this stuff." If we think that way, it's not with the eyes of faith to realize that no, whenever Jesus calls you to something, it's the blessed life. It's the good life. You're being called to being filled up. You're being called to joy. You're being called to blessing. So we embrace it, we engage, and we move forward. And we go to love our neighbors and to love our cities, and we do it expecting God's dump truck of blessing to fall on us. Because that's the God we serve. So with eyes of faith, hear the call to be salt and light to the world, to love your neighbor and love your city, and know that joy and fullness and goodness and blessing is in it For you, you will find it's more blessed to give than to receive. It will have more effect on you than it will on them. But the effect on them will be dramatic. Because you're the salt and light of the world. Amen. Father, thank you for what you've done in Christ and what we're called to. Thank you that you've poured out your light in our hearts that we are united to Christ who is the light, the light, the true light, the one and only light of the world in which we dwell and from whom we manifest light to the world. Raise us up to be salt and light that we would delight in service and sacrificing and giving and loving and blessing that we would become known as a church that brings life and savor and goodness and blessing to this city, that we would gain a reputation as a church that loves, that serves, of a church of flavor, of a church of light, of a church of preservation, of a church of blessing to its community. Make us this for your namesake, that all men everywhere would glorify your name, would exalt you, would see your goodness through us, and come flooding into your kingdom, for we ask this in Christ, amen.